Well, this is a bit of deja vu making videos because of COVID again. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, it's like riding a bike. You never really... What? That's not the camera? I'm not looking at the camera? Where is it? All right, so reading uh, Genesis 2. Start verse 4, go to verse 9, and then skip ahead to 18, read 25. Genesis 2, starting at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no, no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man, Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living being. All right, now to verse 18. Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So I've mentioned a couple of times this novel by David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest. I finished it, and I thought, well, I'll read his, his uh, last novel, which was published after his death. And in fact, it was not completed at the time of his death. Um, and so there's this preface, or an editor's note, the beginning of the book talking about how uh, the editor had to sort of compile uh, these CDs that had some of the novel on it as, along with spiral notebooks, notepads, printouts, stacks of loose leaf papers and, and that on these things were often handwritten notes talking about how things should be ordered and that some of the notes conflicted uh, on one place conflicted with what notes uh, were written elsewhere uh, that there were, that over the course of writing it, uh, David Foster Wallace changed characters' names, um, that m multiple characters ha had um, Doberman hand puppets, which the editor assumed was a mistake, uh, where, you know, Wallace just got confused. Anyway, it just seemed like a huge undertaking. Well, I was thinking about this as we were, you know, as I was examining chapter two, and 
it almost seems as if the editor of Genesis was asleep at the wheel, right? Because Genesis is a book whose opening chapter is the beginning, right, of everything. And its second chapter is about the beginning of everything all over again, except it's like a different draft of the story. You know, they are different. Chapter one is more of a standalone piece. It's kind of self-contained. It's like this poem. Uh, the second creation account reads more like the opening chapter of a novel. I mean, it introduces a larger storyline. Uh, the first talks about humanity in the abstract, but here we get characters. We get Adam, we get Eve, and we will follow their story. So it's this, this is the version of creation that sort of sets in motion this larger story that runs through scripture. Um, so last, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned how I once flipped out in, uh, at a professor in, uh, one of my classes at Calvin Sem no, at Ashland Seminary. And, uh, so I thought, I'd, well, I'll tell another story to kind of balance, balance that one out. Uh, it, during my prolegomena course, which is just snobby way of saying introduction of theology. But anyway, in the Perulagumina course, we had to read a book entitled God in the Wasteland by David Wells. Actually, maybe on the shelf over there. Uh, but anyway, this book, it argues that American evangelical churches have substituted pop psychology for solid theology. Uh, we don't talk about things like sin because we're too worried about uh, self-esteem. Uh, and so we've presented, these churches present God as some sort of genie who just sort of meets our needs or as a CEO who wants us to boost sales by which we mean evangelize. And he says within such a context, grace, talk of grace becomes meaningless. Uh, we have to have a, a better sense of who God is, the holiness of God, in order to understand why grace is so significant. Because grace is not God just going, nah, don't worry about that sin. It's cool. I don't mind. No, it's a big deal. So Wells provides this analysis of well, how is it that we have gone astray like this? Well, he says part of it is we mistakenly assume that the story of Scripture begins with grace. And he says it does not. It begins with sin. Now, I want to say first, I understand the point he's trying to make. But I would just like to say, as I did on the day we discussed that book, no, it doesn't. It begins with grace. In fact, it begins with so much grace. Genesis gives us two versions of it. I mean, this is what sets the Genesis account apart from all the other ancient uh, creation accounts from what the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Canaanites and all that. They have their creation stories, but theirs creation is a, is a result of conflict, uh, a, a result of some sort of intrigue among the gods. It's conducted in order to satisfy their self-interests or uh, of the various deities involved, but not here. There's just one God who doesn't create as an act of war. God is a poet who creates with words. God is a farmer, 
a gardener separating this from that so that it can flourish. God is a, a potter who forms things from earthen clay. Uh, creation is this gift God gives us. It is an act of grace. The story begins with grace. Now, I'm not saying that in order to defend pop psychology and self-esteem. Oh, by the way, the reason that balances out the other one, the other story, that's when I spouted off at Ashland. This time I was spouting off at Calvin Seminary. So, Anyway, it's not that I want to defend pop psychology and self-esteem and all that. Uh, and I'm not trying to defend the notion of God as genie and CEO or whatever. However, if we, if we overlook this gift of grace, as told twice uh, at the beginning of the book, we will fail to understand what the nature of sin. Um, I mean, I think this, the second version of the creation account is helpful in helping us understand the nature of sin, which we will look at more in chapter thir three because uh, that, sin hasn't entered the picture yet in chapter two. But anyway, in chapter two, there's this emphasis on God crea creating life. Uh, it's not by speaking this time, but it's by bringing it out of the earth, out of the ground. Waters rise from the earth. Um, God not only causes plants to emerge from the ground, but also animals. And uh, also formed from the ground, and the Hebrew word there is Adam, from the Adam is the first human being, Adam. Uh, there is this, so all this is coming out of the earth. And so what's emphasized here is this profound connection between um, all living things. It speaks, I think, to sort of the, the, the cycle of life, that things live and then die and become part of the earth, and which gives life to, uh, to new things, the cycle of life. So this profound connection. The one being in the story that is not connected to uh, that, that cycle, of course, uh, is God. Um, but God is deeply connected to the creation. And there are two ways the, which we see this profound connection between God and the creation. The first is that God builds into the creation a sort of bridge between the divine and the earthly realms. And that bridge is us. We are molded into shape from the ground and then filled with divine breath, that connection between earth and, and divine breath. We are how the creator maintains, uh, remains integrated within the creation. That's us, this mix of, of dirt and divinity, of earth and spirit. We are made in God's image. Now, I've heard people claim that, you know, oh, what does it mean to be uh, in the image of God? Well, it's the fact that we have the capacity for a reason. This is what makes us image bearers of God. Or it's that we have a soul, or that we have free will, or a conscience. Um, but the text does not present it as a particular quality or trait that we possess. It's not a specific attribute. What makes us creatures in the image of God has to do with the role we play. God plants a garden. 
and then puts us there to till the earth and maintain it. God creates the animals and then uh, asks the, 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 the human being to name them. All right, so uh, let's see. I'm calling you chicken. And you are hawk. That's a cool name. Whoa, where's chicken going? Hawk, can you do that? No? You know, maybe I'm gonna call, maybe I can call that hawk and you can be chicken. Oh, by the way, here, hawk's coming back. Where are you running off? Chicken? So there's this intimate connection between all created things. They arise from the earth by the will of God. And then there's this intimate connection between humanity and God. We are molded from earth, filled with divine breath. And we are to facilitate the relationship between God and the earth. We are to act on behalf of God. Now, here's something else that's very interesting about this second account. One of the things that's repeated in chapter 1 is God saw that God had made, and behold, it was good. Well, that phrase does not appear in the second chapter. In fact, it's the one time where God says something is not good. And what's not good? It's not good that this bridge creature is alone. That, 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 that he lacks a suitable partner. Uh, in creation, in which everything is connected, everything operates in intimate relationship to everything else. This is a problem. And God remedies it. And what's interesting is God does not remedy it by taking more earth uh, and you know, breathing into it. No, but he creates out of the, that earth creature itself. That's just how intimate the, the, this connection is between us and our, our fellow human beings. Um, which is important, right? Uh, in fact, which was so troubling, uh, this recently some Gideons stopped by the office and after we had a nice, we had a nice conversation, I was looking through the Bible that they left me and there's a, in addition to having Proverbs and Psalms in the New Testament, there's this little index in there with some topics, a topical index, I suppose. And one of the topics in there uh, is sex with some verses can look up. Well, the verses are all about, uh, they're all warnings against lust and against fornication, uh, which, you know, if all you had was a Gideon Bible, you would have the impression that sex is a bad thing. Uh, it's another story that starts with sin, but it's not. That's not where the story starts. The story starts with grace, with a gift. Sex is a celebration of intimate connection, of loving partnership. You know, it's where the line between giving and receiving, loving and being loved, just melts away. You know, as the text says, they become one flesh. That's the image we're given for what uh, sexuality plays in the creation. That's where the story begins. And we all know that things take a turn with sex and with everything else. Uh, 
sin may not be at the beginning of the story, but it finds its way in. And it's like some parasite, turning everything that should be a source of celebration and connection into a source of sickness and brokenness. But we're not there yet. Um, chapter 3. Uh, you know, the story may not over, but in this chapter, it concludes with the vision of what God intended. A world in which everything, everything is connected. Everything is in right relationship. The intimate connection between these, these creatures of earth and divine breath is a profound example of that, where they sort of lose themselves in one another, become one flesh. Now, another interesting feature about this version of the creation story is that it, the language it uses in reference to God. It's different in chapter 1 versus chapter 2. In chapter 1, it's just God. In chapter 2, it's Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Yahweh is the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Uh, when God's, when Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? Well, God reveals the name Yahweh. It's, way, it's the way God indicates, I am all in in this. I am behind in this. It's a, it's a name, in, in short, it's a name that speaks to who God is as a God who makes covenant with God's people. And that is the second way in which God connects to the creation. The first is us, beings of earth and breath. The second is the covenants God makes with the creation. God binds God's self to the creation by promises. God promises to stay connected, to stay entangled within the web of relationships. Now, one thing about a covenant is you only need to make a covenant if there are alternatives. In other words, I don't have to promise not to fly off because as much as I may flap my arms, I'm not going anywhere. So you don't need me to make that promise. Um, so when God makes his covenant, he also makes it so that you, there's an opportunity for an alternative, right? Uh, into this creation of intimate relationships, where everything is in relationship, God establishes an alternative reality. God sets in the middle of the garden sort of a self-destruct button. If this is not the world you want, eat from this tree. Um, humanity can choose to push the button, to, to break the relationship, to eat, eat the fruit, to break the relationship, to sever all those relationships. This is sin. And of course, we'll see in chapter 3, Adam and Eve do. That's what they do. And we do over and over again. We, we break relationships. We, we, they are not, we don't live in relationships of mutual thriving and connection. Uh, we live in a world of hostility and brokenness. I mean, the earth is a ruin of broken relationships, broken covenants. Um, I mean, that, is, that may not be 
That may not be what we see at the beginning of the story, but it's certainly what we see in our own stories. Um, that's, that's the world we find ourselves in. But even as we break covenant, even as we hit the self-destruct button, our covenant partner, God, does not. God remains committed. God remains connected. Yahweh God refuses to settle for broken relationships. Um, and we see this because of a bridge creature, God in the flesh. That's how God keeps covenant. You know, and because God intimate, I mean, even more profoundly, God becomes part of the creation. And because God becomes part of the creation, he's not, God is not immune to the consequences of our pushing the self-destruct button, our, our tendency to break relationships and, and live contrary to that intimate connection. And in fact, he feels that those consequences most profoundly. Because it's, a self, it's not only a self-destruct button, it is a God-destruct button. Because Jesus dies too. But that sin is not the end. It's not the beginning of the story, and it's not the end of the story. Grace is. Restored relationships. Mended connections. In Christ, it, it, it is and will be all put back together. As Paul puts it, through Christ, God reconciles, reconciles all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. To understand that this story begins with grace and that grace is its end, it's not an excuse to go soft on sin, to simply settle for broken relationships between ourselves uh, between us and God, between us and the earth. No, it's quite the opposite. It's to recognize that that desire for connection that you have within you, that was built into you, desire that you have to be connected to God, to be connected to the creation, to be connected to one another, that you were created for that. And your efforts to live into that are not ones you undertake alone, on your own power, breathing only your own air. No, God is so invested in that effort. It's like you're sharing breath. <sighs> Name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.